week 20. You need the church. Well, last week in Romans chapter 15, we discussed the idea of be a blessing, that we are blessed to be a blessing. We've heard that many times, but we specifically talked about how we all have weak places and we all have strong places. We know the verse very well that God says, where you are weak, I am strong, but I think of a lot of us love to stay in that weak place thinking that God never wants to get you stronger. Well, the reason he's strong for you in that weak place is to pull you from weak to strong to equipped, ready to go, so that he can move on to your next weak place. And I don't know about you, but for the rest of my life until I walk into the gates of heaven, there's plenty of weaknesses in me that he needs to get stronger. And with that, we need to be confident enough to identify that you do have some strong places. And the reason you're strong in some places and others are not is not for you to puff yourself up about, look how great I am, but it's you are to help in your strength with the weaknesses of the body. And really, this I, I believe that message really was a setup going into this next idea of you needing the church. We are to help be strong where people are weak, just like God says, I'm going to be strong where you are weak. That is the flow of the relationship with God. And today, we're going into Romans 16, but we're going to finish out the rest of chapter 15 because I believe it's, it's a really good tie-in to what's going on. Now, remember, Paul wrote Romans not knowing if he was ever going to get to Rome. Okay, He wanted to make sure that the, the church in Rome understood some truths, understood some points. So he said, I'm going to get this letter to them so if I don't make it there, they get what I got to say. Because Paul is actually traveling um, on the way to Spain to bring the word of God to people who've never heard the word of God. And he's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm hoping that I get to stop by and see you, but I might not because the Lord has told me on the way it's going to get really tough and it's going to get really hard. So in this letter to the Romans, at the end of chapter 15, Paul starts this in verse 24. I'm planning to go to Spain, and when I do, I'll stop off in Rome. And after I've enjoyed your fellowship for a little while, you can provide for my journey. I love Paul. He doesn't say, we're going to take up a love offering for the mission. No, he's just like, I'm going to enjoy your company, and you're going to provide for my journey. Thank you. Be blessed, right? Paul's just straight to it. I like people who are just straight to it. You know, just tell me what you need. Don't puff it up. Don't, don't make you seem like you're bigger than God. Just tell me what you need so I can help you figure it out, right? That's how Paul is. He's like, I'm on this way to Spain. I'm going to stop in Rome, and I'm going to enjoy your fellowship, and you can provide for my journey. Paul had these plans, but things didn't work out according to his plans. Things seldom ever work out according to the plan, it seems like. But Paul did go to Rome. He did end up getting there. But the thing is, Paul didn't arrive in Rome as a missionary. He actually arrived as a prisoner. We saw that in, in, in the, the last of Acts, how when Paul got to Rome, you know, in his idea, probably he was going to get there and he was going to, I'm a missionary on behalf of God and let's, you know, have a, a, a big crusade and get people saved. But Paul ended up getting there as a prisoner. And I want to say that just because you arrive as a prisoner doesn't mean you are not in your mission field. And just because you arrived as a prisoner doesn't mean that the mission failed. You got to the destination, but just in a little different way than maybe God had intended it for, for you to, to get there. And I think a lot of the people in the church 
us, everyone in this room, we have this idea of what God wants to do in your life, and you arrive at certain places, and you may feel like you arrive there, but you don't think you're ready to be in the place because of the condition of where you're at. You know, like, I, I, was, I was meant to come to this place to do this thing, but there was a lot of stuff on the way that kind of changed the path, changed the plan, but God made it work for my good. And I think we need to understand that, that God does have a plan for you, but that doesn't mean that his plan is going to take place. God's got a plan for you, but whether that plan comes to fruition or not is not up to God. That's up to you. God says, I have predestined every step in your path. I have planned out your whole life. But I love you so much that I want authentic love from you. So I'm going to let you choose. You can walk in this predestined path I have, or you can go your own way, do your own thing, walk in your own steps. And even if you walk outside of my predestined plan, of my predestined path, even if you go totally off of that, if you will turn to me, I'll take all of those wrong steps and make it work as if you never missed one. Right? And, and, and God is telling Paul, like, you're going to get here, but it's going to be really hard. But God can use any circumstance for his glory. We just got to trust him. You know, God's not blind. God's not stupid. When he asks you to go somewhere, he is well aware of the risk. He knew that when he told Paul that, hey, I want you to go to Rome, I want you to go to Spain, that along the way, especially in Jerusalem, there were going to be some pit stops and speed bumps. But the risks do not matter. What matters is his will, and he don't care what the risk looks like. He asks you to go, and he asks you to trust him, even though you might get in situations that aren't necessarily seeming fruitful for your journey. It probably wasn't the plan for Peter to get locked up in prison, but it was the plan for Peter to keep preaching. So God said, Peter, you honor the authority. You're going to be put in prison, but I'm going to come in with an angel. I'm going to open the doors. You're going to walk out. The gates are going to be open for you, and no one's going to do a thing. And that's exactly what happened. Peter ended up in jail, but God just let him out because he's like, do you really think that a man-made prison can stop my plan? Let me go even further. Do you really think a wrong election is going to stop his plan? Let's go even further. Do you really think that a disease is going to halt the plans of God? Right? No, nothing can stop him. But unfortunately, his plans get on pause because the church doesn't know how to be the church. We love to take the pause with everything and just say, well, we'll wait on God's timing. But there's a way that you wait. When the Bible says wait on the Lord, that wait word is actually a word that means like a waitress or a waiter, a servant. You wait on him. You serve him. It's not let me take a break, kick back my shoes, and just act like I'm praying a lot to impress people. That's not waiting on God. Waiting on God is until I get a definite next step, I'm going to serve wherever I need to serve. 
He doesn't promise that it's not going to be a painful journey. If you've ever been taught this false message that, you know, believe in God and all things are going to be great, that's the furthest thing from what God tells us. God actually tells us, follow me and your life's going to get really, really miserable. It's going to get really hard. And let me just say this, if following God has not been hard for you, you need to maybe check who you're following. Because we are following God going against the culture of this world. And if everything about the culture agrees with you, then there's something about you not agreeing with him. We're not called to be culturally relevant. We're called to show the culture what the true culture of heaven looks like. And if nothing about you is distinguished from the culture, then you either in his culture or you're not. God says, I don't do black, I, I, I do black and white. I don't do gray. You either in or you out. Right? So when something is exposed, it's not let me make an excuse, it's let me get it in line. He promises you even. He's like, this is going to be a tough journey. This is going to be a lot of testing in you when you follow me, but you will be rewarded. You see, rewards wait for us in the eternal realm. But I, want, I really want to define really quick, and I know this is a lot of buildup, but it's okay. I really want to define what these rewards are in an eternal realm. Because we think eternal realm in the heavens floating in the clouds, you know, sitting at the big table of God, you know, like you know, a million seats at the table and you might get a glimpse of God, right? We, we, we get this idea of I'm going to be in the heavenly realms and I'm going to get the crowns and rewards. That's true, but it's incomplete. Your eternity is not in heaven. Your eternity is on a restored earth. He says, I'm going to destroy the earth, put a new Jerusalem on it, and I'm going to take you out of heaven and put you back on a restored home front. Literally, heaven on earth. So when you get that idea, do you live your life based off of rewards that will sustain you for 100 years on earth? Or, some of you, if you're lucky, 100 years. Or... Do you live a life that has rewards that will be put on you to live eternally on the earth? You know, like, am I living to please myself for this temporary 80 years on earth? Or am I living understanding that God is going to give me stuff that I'm going to need, that I'm going to love uh, having for the rest of my life when I'm put back here? Because you don't leave them in heaven. Heaven becomes a dwelling place on the earth. It's on you. That's a whole different theological thing, but you get that? Paul is trusting God. Because he's like, you know what? This is going to be painful. This is going to be misery. I might end up in jail. But I know that this is not my final place. This is not where I'm ending up. So I'm going to take whatever God's got for me. I'm going to take whatever man wants to do to me. Because no matter what man tries to do, God's getting the glory. And then in verse 25, it says, but before I come, I must go to Jerusalem to, to take a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they feel they owe a real debt to them. Why? 
Well, since the Gentiles receive the spiritual blessings of the good news from their believers in Jerusalem, they feel that the least they can do to return is to help them financially. As soon as I've delivered this money and completed this good deed of theirs, I will come to see you on my way to Spain. He's saying, guys in Rome, I've got one more place i got to stop before I get to you. And I'm sure that when I come, Christ will richly bless our time together. You see, the Gentiles had received so much from the believers in Jerusalem, not just any believers, but Jewish believers. See, there was no divide between them at this place. The, the, the Gentiles received from the Jewish people. They were growing. They were no longer arguing about, well, I can't give you money. You circumcised and you're not circumcised. No, no, no. They were at a place where they got past it. They got past their differences in how they did things. They were Jewish believers, and there was no divide between them at that point. They received so much that they felt it was their duty. It was the least they could do to help meet a need. And in this case, it was a financial need. You see, that's unity in the church. We'll help you. We'll hold you up. We'll lift you up, even if you're not part of our congregation. Because what they were doing is they were helping a congregation that they were miles and miles away from. Can I just expose something? The church loves to sow into, you know, Samaritan's Purse and adopt a kid. But if a church said, let's help out another church, it immediately turns into fundraisers. It turns into, let's put on a, an event with a band that no one shows up to. Oh, is that, is that too real? You know, we'll, we'll take up thousands of dollars for kids that are malnourished in Africa, for kids that are needing stuff in Haiti. But if I said a church down the street is closing their doors and we've got to raise $25,000, most people in, the minds, in their minds say, well, if they're closing down, there must be a reason and God don't love them. That is not unity in the church. They may have some things off. They may have some style things off. They may not know what they're doing. But why not bear with them in their weakness and pull them up so that they can see the witness of Christ that maybe they've been missing for their church to sustain? But what the church loves to do is find every reason as to why we got to keep it for ourselves and we don't need to help and they get what they deserve. That is not the unity that God is asking us to bear with. Is this okay? Okay. You want to talk about kingdom? It's easy to honor with a thanksgiving. But if none of us are greater than the other, we must be ready, ready to bear with and support each other. You want to talk unity? Let's start to stand with churches who can't stand anymore. And I'm not talking about compromising morals, though. Because there are certain things that this house, I don't care how much you say the name of Jesus, we ain't standing with you. Is that Okay. I don't really care what the culture tells you. I'm not standing with the house that's going to ordain a homosexual minister. I'm not going to ordain a house that says it's okay to have abortion. abortion. I'm not standing with that. Now, if you want to hear some truth, let's have a Bible study. Yeah, y'all are dry tonight. We can't just make everything okay. 
But there are houses that are struggling that the church needs to say, we need each other. I don't care if the style's wrong. I don't care if the style's different. Charismatic churches need Baptist churches more than they realize. Because Baptist churches don't know how to flow and charismatics don't know how to have order. I can hear yabba-dabba-doo all day at the altar, but they don't know how to teach a Bible study. Tell me I'm wrong. I know. Look at Luke 3, 10 through 11. The crowds asked, what should we do? John replied, if you, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Share the treasure we have. And that's what, exactly what Paul's doing. He's like, I'm going to go share this gift. So he's telling the church, we got this gift. We're going to go help our brothers, even though they're Jewish and we're Gentiles, and there's this whole uh, dynamic, and, and, and there's this whole kind of, well, you agree with this, you agree with that. We're going to bear it with each other. And then after all this good stuff, Paul makes a sudden shift in verse 30. Dear brothers and sisters, I urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. He just went, we're going to help. We've raised money. We're going to help. Y'all going to fund my ministry. We're going to fellowship. Help me. Do this because of your love for me given to you by the Holy Spirit. What a shift. We just took up an offering to help the church in Jerusalem. I'm going to stop and bless him with this money, doing a good deed. And then he says, help me in my struggle. What a struggle. Paul knew what was coming. He was warned several times in Acts chapter 20 and 21. He knew that even though he was on his way to do a great thing, that did not buy him a pass from struggle. And yet, how many of us, when we encounter struggle while we were doing good, get surprised and we're so quick to question God? <laughs> you know, you get in this place where you're serving in the church and you're doing all this good stuff and you're tithing and we're helping these, the community out and your family's growing. Everything's doing good. Everything's going well. We're serving God. We're getting real with God. And then all of a sudden struggle comes and you say, God, God, why did you let this happen? God never promises you that serving him is going to make you immune to struggle. Yet every Christian, when you struggle, the first thing you question is, were you in the will of God? And I'll say, if you're truly in the will of God, just letting you know, the struggle is going to get more tough. That's why he says, you've got to learn to abide in me, because when it gets tough, you've got to learn to rest in me, not depart from me. And when it gets tough, we're really quick to run from him and question the motives. And are we even doing anything right when he says, when, not if, when it gets tough, abide in your relationship with me. I am your daddy. I am your God. I want to wrap you up, but I'm, I'm not going to keep you immune to the fact that no one's going to like what you're going to do because you're changing what their norm is. You ever notice how the world calls the church insignificant, but every law being passed is something coming against the church? And yet people are so naive to think that they don't know what's going on. The church is seen in America and around the world as a threat of power. There's so much going on beneath the surface that you don't know. 
Don't think you know what's going on because you watch any sort of news network, whether it be spin media or not. You don't know what's going on. There are powers that be that are very well aware of the spiritual dynamic of what the church is called to do. And everything is coming against it. It's not about the finances of America. And it's not about the economy. It's not about, it's not about let's have a free America where everyone can do what they do. There are powers that be that understand what the church could be. And everything's coming against it. And when it does, don't get shifted as if you're surprised. He says it's going to happen. And because Paul understood that, when he got thrown in jail, when some, some would argue that he was killed and brought back to life when he was stoned, when that happens, I'm right where God wants me to be. Hmm. You see, he knew that even though he was on his way to do a great thing, he didn't bypass the struggle. You see, God prepared you for this. In Matthew 7, 14, it says the gateway to life is narrow and the road is difficult. A few will find it. What is The road is what? Difficult. Well, I just don't know why this is so hard. He literally told you that's the right road to be on. John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Not, you know, if you follow God, everything's going to be great and gravy and, and you know, it, no, no, no. It's going to be hard. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, y'all want to talk about last days? Let's read this verse. I don't want to talk about earthquakes and floods. Let's talk about this. In the last days, there will be very difficult, these will be very difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. Y'all know anyone like that? Someone to be in this church. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe I'm not. Be convicted. <laughs> People will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They'll consider nothing sacred. <coughs> Monuments being thrown down. Verse 3. Oh. Okay. Verse 3. Y'all didn't hear that? Listen to the podcast. Verse 3. They will be unloving and forgiving. They will slander others. They have no self-control. Y'all don't know anyone like that. They'll be cruel. They'll hate what's good. They'll betray their friends. They'll be reckless. They'll be puffed up with pride, love, pleasure rather than God. They'll act religious, but they'll reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. But what, but what do we do in our, you know, in, in our church ease? Well, we got to love them anyways. Love them from a flipping distance. Why do you break bread with these people but not the people of God? You need the church. If every relationship in your life is a missionary assignment, get some new relationships. Because you can't effectively serve them unless you are with the body. <laughs> yeah. It is. <laughs> Verse 12. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Everyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer persecution. If you're not pers suffering persecution, you're not anywhere close to a godly life. 
I love the fact that people come at me all the time, you know, boldly on Facebook Messenger. Every time I get one of those messages, confirmation. <laughs> Verse 13, evil people and imposters will flourish. But why do those people get ahead of us? He told you in the Bible it was going to happen. They're going to flourish. They'll deceive others and then will themselves be deceived. Like they actually think they're good to go because of what's happening. You see, God's prepared us for all of this. And look at Paul's example. He doesn't complain about it. He just leans on the church. He says, I'm going to come by. I'm going to see you. You're going to fund my ministry. We're going to have a great fellowship time. And then he looks at me and says, hey, I'm about to go here. And, you know, all this bad stuff we've been prepared for, people are going to hate us and people ain't going to like us and people are going to talk bad about us. Pray for me. He's literally depending on the body to be his strength on the path. And there are so many of us who come to church and we hear good worship and we hear a good sermon, but if you're not doing life with the people of God, you are not properly equipped for handling what's coming against you. If the extent of your church relationship is a worship gathering on the weekend, you are not part of the body. You're a spectator of the body. Okay. See, Paul senses the danger and the struggle awaiting him. And he knew, as great and as good and as bad as he may be, he says, church, I need you. Look at verse 31. Pray. Church, pray that I'll be rescued from those in Judea who refuse to obey God. Pray also that the believers there will be willing to accept the donation I'm taking to Jerusalem. He says, pray for me that I'll be rescued from unbelievers who aren't going to like the change that I'm bringing by the word. Pray for me that the church will even accept my donation. Why would he be thinking of that? Churches love money. Because they regarded Paul as a dangerous guy. Remember, he was the one that was responsible for carrying out the killing of the first martyr. Paul had a whole history of killing Christ followers. And here he comes with a donation from the church. Like, I would be a little skeptical too. Like, wait, Paul's here to give us money? Right? Because they, 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 remember, Paul had not come yet, and they're, for all they know, he, like, what, what, who is this Paul guy? He was killing us, and now he's supporting us? He's bringing a gift to the Gentiles, or from the Gentiles to, to the Jews. They're probably thinking, what's your deal? Gentiles to Jews and your Paul. You know, people will always question great motives. But Paul doesn't complain. He simply asks for backup. Pray for me. Pray with me. And I think a lot of times God gives us an assignment to do and we're hesitant to do it because it's just too hard or we're scared of how we'll be received. How did Paul handle that? Church, pray for me as I go. Not pray for me on the timing of when. If, if I can get real, as if I need permission. You ever notice that in church language, we're always about pray for God's timing, and you pray for God's timing for like 40 years? Let, 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 me, just, let, let me just make you aware of something. If God told you to do it, the timing to start that process is right now. 
Don't force it. Just start walking toward it. But here's where you get it mixed up, messed up, is you think that you can actually do it alone and you don't need anybody. Okay. Because one of the biggest issues in this society, I probably shouldn't say this, but I'm going to. And I didn't realize it until recently. But one of the biggest issues is we identify ourselves with this thing and then we prevent every move of God based off of what this thing is. You, well, you know, you, you have a personality assessment, right? Right, I'm an introvert. And you let that be bigger than God. Like God calls you to community and then you tell him why you can't be a part of the community. Well, God, I'm an introvert. God's like, well, I, I flip and made you. Right? Or extroverts. They don't ever shut up and they excuse it because they say they're extroverts. <laughs> we got some honest people in the room. Well, that's just who I am. Well, be transformed, dude. But we, we y'all laughing, but we love, <laughs> we love to take these personality assessments. Well, I'm a dominant. Well, in this moment, you need to be a, a humility, humble, humble. Y'all leave me alone. Right, but we love to make those excuses. This is who I am, therefore I'm contained to this thing. No, you're not. You need people. God did not create you to do life alone. When he looked at Adam, he says, this is good, but Adam, this ain't good because you're alone. We talked about this a little bit in men's group, but one thing we've been taught over the years, you know what alone was in, in, the, in the ancient text? It was you're alone, you're all one. So he didn't make Eve out of the, out of the dust and the clay. He says, I'm going to pull her out of you because you're all one. And all one works better separate. Mm. So what does that mean? The church is not the preacher. The church is all, all one. It's not good for you to be alone but it is good for you to be all one so there's things that are in you that need to be pulled out for her there are things in you that need to be pulled out for him and if you think for a moment that you can accomplish your purpose solo you are being deceived by Satan himself he thought he could do it all better, and he fell out of heaven like lightning. Boom, you're gone. He wanted the worship for himself. He was the worship leader of heaven. He got a taste of glory. I can do this. All. Bam, out. That was the fight. Because people love to get a taste of something and just, I want it. I want it. It's not good for you to have it all. Paul senses his danger. He said, pray for me. 
verse 32. And then by the will of God, then after you pray for me, I'll be able to come to you with a joyful heart and will be an encouragement to each other. And now may God who gives us his peace be with you all. Amen. He says, I can't come to you, church in Rome, until this assignment's finished. And there are so many unfinished assignments because they couldn't be completed. And most of the time, they're not completed because you never ask for help from the church that you say you're a part of. It, it is very strategic and tactical that you understand you need your church to accomplish your purpose. Because when you start to understand that you need me and I need you and you need each other and you need people that you don't have nothing in common with, but we're getting that in a little bit, stuff starts to pull on you and come out of you that helps you accomplish who you are destined to become and what you're destined to do. Some of the greatest advices I've ever gotten in my life were from people who I had nothing in common with. But America basically... You got to find people you have something in common with, and if you ain't got anything in common with them, nothing's ever going to be fruitful. And that's why we have race issues and divide. That's why we have divide within economics. That's why we have divide between denominations. Divide, divide, divide between left and right. Well, let me let me just open your eyes. There's stuff they got that you need, and there's stuff that you need that that they don't have. And if you don't like the fact that I say that, get out. So, just kidding, but really, I don't care what you have to say. As great as Paul was, he knew he, I, I, need, I needed, he said, I, I need the body. Think about Matthew 16, 18. Now, I say to you that you, Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church. And all the powers of hell won't conquer it. Pay attention. Leave that up there. Pay attention to that. Look at what it says. I will build the church and the powers of hell won't conquer the church. You want to know why so many are conquered? Because they don't know the thing that they don't know they need the thing that hell can't conquer. Because you think nothing can conquer me, it's very easy to conquer you when you alone. You see, demons are good at individuals. They have to work for a body. <laughs> he said, the powers of hell won't conquer the body. If you will be together you'll start to be able to identify when people get overcome with all this stuff and you'll be able to bear with them and pull them out of it. If you ever think you don't need people, you've gotten the whole thing completely wrong. The key is when the church is in pursuit of him and not sustaining what they love, this is the key. When the church is in pursuit of him, and not sustaining what they love. Rather giving up what they love for what he loves. 
Because a lot of the standstill in the church is when we value our stuff more than where he wants to take us, and yet for some reason we don't recognize it as idol worship. Because as long as it has Jesus attached to it, it can't be an idol. Wrong. I mean, think about the divide in the church. The moment a pew was taken out and a chair put in, divide. But let's turn it around. If I said let's put pews in. Because we make the style the idol. We make the age group the idol. We make whether or not kids' church is good enough the idol. Think about when people are looking for a church. What are they looking? I want a good guest experience. I want a good cup of coffee when I come in. I want a VIP card. I want a great nursery. And nowhere in their looking was the presence of God. I mean, if you want to get real about it, when they started the church, there wasn't no kids program. The babies were crying when Jesus was teaching. And no, guess what? No one complained about it. But I hear that junk all the time. Well, that baby was distracting. Are you telling me that that little cry is more powerful than your focus? Because we got all these things of what is a great church? A great church is when people get together and pursue him. That's it. And yet we'll strategize all month long. How do we become a powerful house? Do life together. Paul gets it. And then going into Romans 16, Paul starts talking about the church that he needed. The church that you need. Oh, this is okay. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Romans 16. Huh. Romans 16 is great if you ever want to talk about women in ministry. Based off of these first two verses right here. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a deacon in the church in Centria. I'm going to go ahead and let y'all know. There's a lot of names in Romans 16. I'm probably going to get them wrong. Just deal with it. <laughs> I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who's a deacon in the church in Centuria. Welcome her in the Lord as one who was worthy of honor among God's people. If you ever need to prove to someone that women can be in ministry, tell them to read the Bible. Help her in whatever she needs. For she's been helpful to many and especially me. Do you realize what the Apostle Paul just said? I could not have done my ministry without Phoebe. Not the one from Friends, but the Phoebe from Acts chapter 16. Paul recommends this woman. He says, honor this woman. Help her. She's been helping so many. She's a deacon. Let me tell you what a deacon is. A deacon is not a position in the church. A deacon is not a governing official over a body. All a deacon was, was what the word was. A servant. 
If you've ever wanted to be a deacon, serve. It's not a position. It's not a governing board. When you serve God, you are a deacon in the body. That's all that is. It was a Greek word that people put as an official title. A true church is filled with deacons eager to serve. And it's not something you strive for, it's something you are. You see, she helped Paul. You never know what God will do for you when you serve people. She didn't serve Paul thinking this is going to be my leg up. She just served him. And then Paul gives her his blessings and says, Hey, church, help her in whatever she needs. There are so many things meant for your purpose locked up in serving someone that you don't like. Locked up in serving someone that doesn't seem like they're any benefit to you. Just serve them. Serve the need. As long as it's for the glory of God. She didn't have to say it. She didn't have to come to the church and say, hey, I serve Paul. What you got for me? No, he did it. When you serve whoever, God will use those things to set you up for your needs. Well, I've got needs. Start serving. Because I guarantee you, you're going to end up serving someone who's going to hear you out, who's going to know your story, and before you know it, something's going to be offered to you. I have a stupid side job. When I say stupid, I mean stupid good. Can I, can I be real? I work maybe eight hours a week at this job and get more than 30 grand a year doing it. That, that's called a good deal. You know how I got it? I met some random dude years ago who was a wise man, and I just said, what can I do? Started serving him. Started helping the family. Started helping their teenagers. Started doing whatever I could to help. We talked. I didn't necessarily want to take time out of my day to have lunch with him all the time. But I started doing it. Over the years, we built a great relationship. And then one day he says, hey man, I got this job and I think you're the one that can do it. What do you think? It was never I was in pursuit of a crazy paying job. It was I served the guy. You never know what's locked up in what you serve. I need someone to park cars, right? And you think, well, I'm, I'm too good to, to I, I don't want to greet at the door. I want to be an altar worker. Well, if you ain't good at talking to people, I don't want you to pray for them. But you think what's good is in that for me. Because you don't see how serving positions you for assignment. That's exactly what Phoebe did. She just served him. And then Paul's like, hey, whatever she needs, do it. Look at, look at what happens in verse 3. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. Believe it or not, that's a man and a woman. I just felt like those names were feminine, but okay. Give my greetings to Priscilla and Aquila. My co-workers in the ministry of Christ Jesus. In fact, 
They once risked their lives for me. I'm thankful to them. Well, you better be. And so are all the Gentile churches. Also, give my greetings to the church that meets in their home. Let me say that one again. That meets in their home. Greet my dear friend, Apennonitus. He was the first person from the province of Asia to become a follower of Christ. This couple was actually <coughs> helping Paul. Excuse me. We don't have an account of how they risked their lives, but we knew, do know a bit about them from Acts chapter 18. They were a devoted couple traveling with Paul, and people saw a strong, godly marriage in them. You see, when you get connected, you see strengths that you don't have, and you can glean from it. If you're having issues with, in your marriage, find a couple who ain't. And then learn and not give excuses as to why they wrong. They were, they, this couple was actually tent makers. They were just like Paul. Paul was a tent maker. They had something in common. They were the ones in Acts 18 explaining and raising up preachers in Ephesus. There was Apollos the preacher. He was preaching really good stuff. And they took him aside and says, hey, you're doing a good job, but let's go a little deeper. Paul held them as lifelong friends. In fact, in 2 Timothy, when Paul was near his last days on earth, he urges Timothy, he's like, go get Priscilla and Aquila. They traveled with Paul. They were ministry partners that he actually liked to travel with. They were great friends and ministry that Paul could count on. We all need Priscilla's and Aquila's in our lives. Another great thing is Priscilla and Aquila, they had a great model of a home church. Before the meeting got corrupted with man's desire for power. Is that too much? It was so good, it says, just what we read, that the home church they pastored were blessed to have the first believer ever out of Asia in their church. They were able to have a home church from where they were, and they ministered cross-culturally in the name of Jesus. And I believe we're going back to that model one day. I believe we will go back to the homes. Because two things can happen when the government tries to take control. We can protest and cry of them saying we can't meet or we can meet. Because you're not protesting and crying meeting. You're protesting and crying how you meet. Is this too much? Meeting in homes. They had pastors over these homes, friendships, families, common traits. It was strong examples of how to do life together. And then Paul goes in on after talking about all these ministry partners into this testimony of all these people of the church. I mean, look at, look at verses 6 through 16. <clears throat> Give my greetings to Mary. <coughs> To Mary, who's worked so hard for your benefit, greet Adronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who were in prison with me. They're highly respected among the apostles and became followers of Christ before I did. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. I'm sorry. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, my dear friend Stasius. Uh, greet 
Apolli is a good man whom Christ approves. Give my greetings to the believers from the household of Aristopolis. Greet Heron Dion. I would not like being a pastor back in this time. My fellow Jew, greet the Lord's people from the household of Narcissus. Give my greetings to Tryphena and Tryphosa, the Lord's worker. What's up with these people? Why can't they be named Jack and Jill? And the dear Perses, who's worked so hard for the Lord, greet Rufus. Now, there's a name I can get behind. <laughs> Greet Rufus, whom the, whom the Lord picked out to be his very own, and also his dear mother, who's been a mother to me. Give my greetings to Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, the brothers and sisters who met with him. Give my greetings to Philogogus, Julia, Nereus, his sister, and to Olympus. Y'all know, I don't skip verses, so deal with it. And all the believers who meet with them. I deserve an applaud for that. <laughs> all right, shh, be quiet. Verse 16, greet each other with a sacred kiss. We're not adopting that. All the churches of Christ send you to their greetings. Now, I read all that. But let me point out what Paul just did. He said, Mary, she's a hard worker. Adronicus and Junior, they were with me in prison, and I highly respected them because of their knowledge and wisdom. And Pleiotus, he was a good friend. Urbanus, he was a co-worker. He helped me in ministry. Stasis was a good friend. Apollos was a good example of a man, and I pointed people to him. Aristobulus led a house church. Herodian, he was a Jew like me. He was a friend. Narcissus led a house church. Tryphena and Tryphosa and Perseus, they worked hard for God. Rufus, he was picked out to be God's and he was special and he was used by God. Rufus's mother, she was like a mother to me. All the brothers and sisters who met with Rufus, he says all this good stuff about him. And notice that he never pointed out what they were known for being bad in. He lifted them up with honor and love. Do you realize you need the church? Because sometimes all I hear from you is how you don't like so-and-so and how this person's weak here and how this person's annoying there. When are we going to lift them up for what they're good at? Because I may not like to have a 30-minute conversation with this dude, but there's something he's great at that if I can just get through the 30 minutes... There's something in him that I need. Because we don't like to focus on that. We like to focus on why should we divide? Why does that not just fit my, you know, on my plate? But there is something about them that God says, all one is in them for you. Romans 12.10 says this. Be devoted to tenderly loving your fellow believers as members of one family. Try to outdo yourselves in respect and honor one another. You need a church that you can count on, depend on, and do life with. And you don't become that by telling everyone who you don't like. See, I'm not scared to address the stuff. Because I, I, I truly believe that this house is on its way to being a church like no other. And it's not going to be based off of spending $80,000 on a light show. It's going to be the presence of God is so thick in here that we don't need anything to add to it. But it ain't going to happen if all I hear about. Is this making sense? 
You don't become that by telling people who you don't like. Find the good and make deposits instead of drawing lines because of their faults. Because while you talk about all their issues, let me tell you a little secret. You got them too. And Paul was very intentional about honoring and lifting them up. Why? Because he knows people. And then look what he says in verse 17. And now I make one more appeal. My dear brothers and sisters, watch out for people who cause divisions and upset people's faith by teaching things contrary to what you've been taught. Stay away from them. Such people are not serving Christ our Lord. They're serving their own personal interests. By smooth talk and glowing words, they deceive innocent people. He says, watch out for two things in the church. People who cause divide and people who deceive with bad teaching. He says, stay away from these people because if they're doing that, even though they may quote scripture and preach good, they're not serving Christ. They're serving themselves. They have motives. They care for themselves and no one else. You know, they're building the church for their wallet, not for the church, right? And as soon as another opportunity comes, they'll abandon you because they don't love you, right? And it says they deceive innocent people. Another word to use here for innocent is simple. People who deceive people easily deceive those who are easily wavered because they simply do not know. The fact of the matter is, you need the church. But make sure you're part of true seekers who are not all about themselves. I, I, I really believe that the church has got to take a shift. We've got to start lifting each other up. And if you can't stick with that, go find another place to mess up. If I may be so bold. Remember what happened with Ananias and Sapphira? They came in with wrong motives to the church. They walked in the door and they dropped down dead. I want that kind of unity. <laughs> like, like seriously, when the people of like this house gather, if you've got, if you've got a motive that's contrary to the body, you won't be able to remain apart. Like something will sicken you to, 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 to repulse you away, right? That, that's unity in the church. Like you can't get in unless your heart's pure. But that can't happen unless the people already in the house are already a pure heart. I want revival. Okay, let's revive how you're talking bad about Susie Sally. I want healings. Heal your mouth. I want that stuff. I want to see God pour out like never before. But it is dependent on something. It's dependent on the body of Christ actually being an all-one body. Thank you. You need the church. And Paul wasn't saying that this was happening here necessarily. He was just saying, watch out because it's coming. Unfortunately, we're in the day that he said, watch out for it. Watch what he says in verse 19. Everyone knows that you're obedient to the Lord. He's talking about this church. 
This makes me very happy. I want you to be wise in doing right and stay innocent of any wrong. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Hallelujah. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Isn't it funny when people warn you to prepare you, you automatically take it as an accusation against your character? Sometimes they're just simply warning for the benefit of all one. Take the warning. He wasn't telling them, well, y'all been doing it. He said, listen, I'm preparing you for what's coming. I'm not saying you're doing it. He's been lifting up this entire time because he, he's trying to teach a very simple concept in this letter. We need each other. We need each other. There's stuff in you that I need. There, there, there's, there's stuff in Marty that I need, even though she probably feels like I disregard her most of the time. There, there's, there's, there's stuff in the people sitting next to you that you need, and you haven't even had a conversation with them. And yet, in America, we've adopted the idea of gathering as a church that's so big where you can't know the people in your church. Like, they were intentionally smaller so that it was true intimacy. That way, when they all came together for a purpose, everyone knew someone and was connected by the unity of the Spirit. There was no one left out. There was no one left behind. There was no one trying to figure out, how can I connect? They realized they, they needed each other. They could not afford to have someone come to the house and never be used and never be pulled on and able to just slip through the cracks and never be seen. You know, the people that slip through the cracks, let me just tell you, if you're one of those people who, like, you're thinking, how can I get out of here the fastest? I get it. But let me tell you something. There is something in you that the church needs. It's not a maybe. It's a fact. You need a leader to warn and prepare and bring to the surface. It's essential for your growth. You need people that you can trust to say, hey, this is going to happen if you keep doing this. And when we're obedient, it says God crushes Satan, but he does it under your feet. What, is, what does it say? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You know what under your feet meant in the scripture? It speaks of you having authority over something. The enemy is trying to come against everything you created to do. The God of peace will crush what he's trying to put on pause in your purpose. What is God of peace? Peace among the all one. I'm the God of peace, not divide, not of quarrel. I want my body to love each other so that when the enemy comes against purpose, you can walk in authority over him because he's defeated. The enemy's working. Stay obedient and, you, and you have your authority subjected to God's because one day he's going to be ultimately defeated. In the me meantime... 
Every battle now is a preview of the ultimate one to come. I used to sing a song, Satan is under my feet. If y'all don't know that song, you just, you ain't cool. Or I'm not, but it's all right. I used to get down to that song and just feel, I, I used to ride in my 2002 Isuzu Rodeo. Listen to that and just singing and dancing and then you, you, you know, you get to this traffic light and realize you don't have tinted windows. But you know what? It was, I believed what I was singing. He doesn't have any authority over you, but he wants to deceive you into it. And Paul says, no, 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 all that stuff is going to be done. And then he goes on with more accolades, if you will. Look at verse 21. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends you his greetings, as do Lucius, Jason, finally, Jason, that's easy. And Sosipater, my fellow Jews, I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, just to let you know, Paul never actually wrote any of his letters. He had someone write them down. This is the only book that gives you the name of the writer. I, Tertius, the one writing this letter for Paul, send my greetings to, of course he's got to get his word in, as one of the, as one of the Lord's followers. Gaius says hello to you. He's my host. And that's pretty cool. We call our servers hosts here. I didn't know that was in the Bible. Thank you, God. He is my host and also serves as host to the whole church. Erastus, the city treasurer, sends you his greetings. So does our brother Cordus. Most versions leave out verse 24, so I found one that had it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Told you, I don't skip verses. I find it. As letter to the Romans end, he mentions, first of all, Timothy. He says, you know, this is my spiritual son, one of the closest and most truest I've got. Then he talks about Lucius, Jason, and Sosipat, or others who choose to, li to list it with Timothy. Tertius, writing this letter, he's giving credit to Erastus, the city treasurer, Cordus, a dear brother, a close friend. And look what he says about Gaius. He says, it says, hello to you. He's my host and serves as host to the whole church. He's got such a reputation as a servant that he's called a servant of the whole flipping thing, a servant of all. Mark 9, 35, he sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of all, everyone else. Not a servant of who you like, not a servant of who you have stuff in common with, a servant of all. You need the church, but the church needs you. And look at the outdoing of honor coming from Paul over and over and over. This dude was going to prison for the name of Jesus, you know, been going through the, the craziest stuff, and the whole time he never talks about how great he is. He's outdoing with honor to every single one that he can think of and name. And yet we live in a society where the only person you really want to get to know is the man with the microphone. You see how it's backwards? And to end the entire book of Romans, he says this in 25 through 27. Now all glory to God. He says, now that I've honored everyone, now all glory to God who's able to make you strong 
just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed his plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. But now, as the prophets foretold, and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere, so that they too might believe and obey him. All glory to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. With all the dangers coming against the Romans, coming against the church, he says, I want you to give all glory to God, and he'll make you strong. His plan, kept secret for so long, has finally been revealed in Jesus. And he makes you strong. The key to that is understanding that you is not singular. He makes you all, all one. He makes you strong. So if he makes you, the church, strong, it's only as strong as its weakest member, as in Corinthians tells us. And that's why we cannot overlook a single soul. I'm not saying I'm going to do this anytime soon, but I have wrestled so many times with should we just cancel the idea of kids' church and get the kids among us to worship with us and glean from us and hear the same teaching. Because I can tell you, my, my, my seven-year-old nephew can say stuff that I thought that I whispered. Y'all ever had kids in your life like that? Like a seven-year-old can recite everything you said yesterday, but they can't remember the homework? Right? Imagine what would come out of them naturally if they were just exposed to this. Like it was. All. You know, we talk about scripture like child, childlike faith, healing people. Well, why are we so dumb to not tap into that at altar call? Because I, I, I've heard some of your faith. I would much rather four-year-old Lucy come pray for this person than some of the doubting Thomases in this room, right? Why do I bring that out? The Bible tells us we need He said, I'm making you all strong. Why do we have this rhetoric of I can do this and God has got me, I don't need anybody? You're deceived. I can do everything God has for me on my own. Impossible. He ends this whole letter with a reminder. God has a plan and it's going to be carried out as the church comes together under one name. Is when you do it alone, your glory is about you. And you're just deceived thinking that you aren't prideful about it. Why would you call that prideful if you think you can do that alone? Because you're coming against his design thinking that you can do it better. His design is the body. He has a perfect plan. It's a church relying on each other all submitted to him for one purpose, to bring the solution of him to the world. You know, we can talk all day about when are we going to go win the lost and, you know, evangelize and go, go in the streets of Savannah and 
find the people. It will never be effective until we are all one. It just won't. There are times when God's going to work through us for sure. There's going to be times when you're walking in Walmart and God drops something in you and you minister to someone and they come to know Christ. Absolutely. But I don't want to bring them back to division. They get enough of that in the world. We have got to understand that we need the body. You need a house. Well, Kyle, why are you telling us all this? We're here. Because there are people that have your voice that don't understand it. What is my, what is my calling? Not to necessarily just teach you but to equip you with what you need to go out and do. There are people who need this truth that are never going to hear it in a message. And the idea of the church is not go listen to Pastor Kyle's sermon. It's let them hear it through you. They want your voice, not mine. And the biggest voice is the witness of your lifestyle. We need each other. It's the most beautiful design from the beginning of time. Even God has to exist in three. And let me tell you something. You ain't better than God. So I close this whole series out with this just one simple thought. The solution to this world is a unified body under the headship of Jesus. So let's offer them a solution, amen.